0: Can we thank him for her sermon? <laughs> there he was in the in the pitchness of darkness, sitting there, couldn't even see the, the hand in front of his face as he's there in the pit. When finally the top was taken off, light was let in and he sees his older brother, Reuben. He's pulled from the pit, perhaps thinking maybe I'm going to go home to Papa. But Reuben, his brother, takes him to a bunch of Arab slave traders and sells his bro for 20 pieces of silver. The love of money is the root of all forms of evil. Jesus, there in the garden, was kissed over and over by his friend, only for his friend to say, this is the man, and be arrested. And there he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The love of money is the root of all forms of evil. Ananias and Sapphira planned to do a righteous thing. They sold all their properties to give to the church, but then the conscience, the whispers started creeping in. What can we do with this money? Imagine where we can go. Imagine how we could live. And they lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to the apostles, and God judged them on the spot. The love of money is the root of all forms of evil. There was a man named Demas who went on missionary journeys with Paul. He abandoned Paul in the heat of battle. Why? Because he loved the things in this present world. You see, the Bible talks so much about money. And Christians, we have so many different views on money, how we should view money, how we should handle money, all of these different questions, and many of which are from very different perspectives. You have like the Amish. They hate the financial systems. They rebuke and really abhor technological advances for one purpose, not because they don't want electricity or air conditioning or the the rest of the good stuff. It's because they don't want to be stained by the world. They don't want to fall into the lure and temptation of things and consumerism and materialism and money. So they completely abstain, viewing money as almost evil. Then you have on the other side of the spectrum a completely different view of money. Health, wealth, prosperity. If you really believe in God, you'll be rich. A completely different view from those of the, the Puritans and the Amish. Well, what does the Bible really say about money? How do we view it? How can we handle it? How are we to go about using it and obtaining it? This week and next week, we are going to look at those questions. Specifically today, how should the Christians, how should a Christian view money? From a biblical correct perspective, what is our view on money? And here's the truth money is not evil. Money isn't evil. Money isn't good. Money doesn't love you. Money doesn't hate you. I know when we're driving down the street and we see somebody pass by in a $150,000 car and we're driving in this little hooptie, it feels like money hates me and money really loves that person. But that's not the case at all. Money doesn't love you or hate you. Money isn't evil nor is good. Money is amoral. Money is nothing. All money is is a medium to purchase goods and services at a fair market value. That's it. That medium could be shells, beads, cotton printed on money with dead presidents. That medium could be anything. All it is is buying power to purchase goods and services at a fair market value. It's not good nor evil. Yet 40% of Americans, their marriage ends in divorce because of money. The church is broken because of money. The marriage cycle can be broken because of money. You got one spouse who spends a whole bunch. That's a problem. You have one that's so tight and tries to save everything. That may be a problem. You have one who's a risk taker and they want to start their own business while the other one spent their whole life saving this nest egg and they don't want to do it. There's a potential problem. So how we view money and money itself is so important. So with that, turning your Bibles to first Timothy chapter six, and we're going to look at how the Christian should view Money. Next week, we're going to look at now the practical aspect of money. With the correct view, how do we practically save, spend? How do we deal with debt? How do we invest biblically? But today, we're looking at how we are to view money. What are we to do? Number one, don't love it. Look at First Timothy chapter 6, And verse nine and 10. Here's the first warning of the Bible when it comes to money. Now, money itself isn't evil. It's how you respond to it. That is, it either makes you or you make it. So the Bible's warning, the pitfall or the potential pitfall to money is number one, loving it. First Timothy chapter six and verse nine. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. So in verse 9, we have a cause and we have the effect. What's the cause of verse 9? Even before that, they fall into temptation for a reason. Why? They want to get rich. Look at the cause. This is the desire of the person. And what's the cause of a person? I want to be rich. I want to have it all. I want the house with the lake. I want the boats. I want the jet ski. I want the vacation rentals. I want it all. That's the desire or the cause, to be rich. Now look at the effect. What happens to a person when they purpose to be rich? They fall into temptation, a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires. And what happens then? Which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Now, we're not talking salvation. We are talking the aspect of sanctification or growing into Christ-likeness. What happens when a person veers off and starts stops seeing Jesus as Lord and starts seeing money as Lord? What happens is they fall into all kinds of foolish desires and their life gets wrecked. Wife runs out, they lose their business, they lose their house, whatever. Their life ultimately, their spiritual life, all their ability to bear fruit is broken at that point. Now specifically, the desire to get rich is in verse 10. What does that look like? For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Now, this desire to get rich, was it because they loved God? Did they want a whole bunch of money so they can plant orphanages and churches and they can start all kinds of charitable works? No. What was the desire or the driving force behind their cause to be rich? No, it's in verse 10. They loved money. The people who want to get rich... It's not because they have a righteous purpose. It is because they love money. And that's one word in Greek, and it's taking two words and slamming it together. The first is silver, and the second word is the Greek word phila. So we have a city called Philadelphia, which is known as the city of brotherly love, which comes from phileo, the Greek word. This word, love of money, is phila silver, or you have an affection, you have a draw towards silver. Now, you can be dead broke and still love money. Just because you don't have it doesn't mean you can't love it. It, This is not just for the rich. This is for everybody. You can be dead broke thinking about the 20-inch rims and thinking about the house and the jewelry and all the rest, and you can be in the sin of loving money, even though you've never had it in your life. The idea is, or the driving force is, money has your heart. It has now taken your affections. It now begins to own you. And notice what happens because of that. The love of money, then the effect is, is the root of what? All forms of evil. Think of it just from the justice department, right? Just just, let's say the courtroom. What happens if, if a judge loves money or a jury loves money and bribery starts and corruption? What happens to the entire justice system? Complete. Why are law enforcement doing their job for just to throw them in the courtroom so they can be thrown right back out? Justice dies when people love money. It absolutely dies. And when justice dies, civilizations die with it. Because anarchy begins to happen. Law and order is gone. Anarchy then takes its place. Think of, think of another thing. America has been in so many endless wars. We have the most powerful military on the planet. We can go end these countries. We can have done Vietnam quickly. We could have done many of these countries quickly. Why? In the industrial military complex makes billions on top of billions on top of billions of dollars. It is one massive business. We are printing hundreds of billions and sending it to another country. You don't think there's people on the other end getting greased. Think of this. There are no poor people on Epstein's Island. The only ones are those who are being extorted for their goods and their services. Because the love of money is the root of all forms of evil. You look across the globe and you will see evil and all you have to do is follow the money trail. How does a politician make $125,000 a year salary and they have $200 million in assets? You, many of you, make more than these politicians and our congressmen or senators, but you don't have a quarter of a billion dollars lying around. My question is, what kind of evil has to happen for them to be rewarded that kind of money. So you see how love and the love of money can suck a person in to do anything, literally anything. Sell their own brother for silver. Sell their own Lord for silver. Sell their own soul for silver. Now, why is it so bad? Jesus said this, where your treasure is, or I'm sorry, where your heart is, there your treasure is also. So if you're a Christian, what's the number one command? You are to love the Lord your God with A-L-L, your heart. Where your heart is, there your treasure is. If you love God, then on the throne of your heart, the Lord reigns. If you love money, Then on the throne of your heart, Benjamin Franklin reigns, Hamilton reigns, Jackson reigns. Am I going to love a living risen savior or dead presidents? That's the real question. Is my heart, my life, my affection, my drive going to worship and serve dead presidents or a living savior? Where your heart is there, your treasure is also. This is why God says money's not bad, but make sure how you respond to it. That you don't fall in love with it. So here's a couple tests. Cause I know we're so self-righteous. We say, Oh no, not me. Never me. Nah, I don't fall into that camp. Okay. Test it. So question number one. And before we get all self-righteous, pfft, not me. Think about it. Number one. Are you willing to sin for money? So let's think of the IRS. Have you ever cheated on your taxes? to save money. If so, then you are willing to sin for money. That is a very big red flag. That is the greatest red flag that you have an affection and love towards money greater than what it needs to be. For you to steal or lie or cheat or do anything for money is a grand and epic indication that you love it way more than maybe you even think. And why we're asking these questions is the fourth point of the the pitfall of money is the deceitfulness of riches. And so money can blindly captivate us and control us without even knowing. So that's the purpose of these questions. Am I willing to sin to save money? Here's number two. Do I think about money all the time? How am I going to pay the rent? Oh, if I can just have this car. Oh, if I can just have that thing. Oh, if I can just get that salary or that promotion. Oh, if my retirement account can just go up. Oh, if the stock market was just doing better. Do you think about money all the time? See, what you fix your mind on is really where your heart is. Imagine, remember when you dated your spouse? They were in your mind 24-7. Why? Because they had your heart. This is the idea with loving money. This is the idea behind these questions. So here's another question, do you show off your wealth? That's another good indication that you look at material things in a a lens or a view that may not particularly be all that good. Now here's the final question. Do you have enough money? Now some of us might be broke as a joke and the legitimate answer might be no, I don't. And that's not an indication that you love money. But if you have enough, and it's not enough for you, then maybe it's time you really look at your own heart and say, okay, do I love money perhaps more than I should? So the Bible warns us, number one, don't fall in love with money. Why? It's going to wreck your life. And you're going to end up doing things you could have never dreamed of yourself doing because you got sucked up in the deceitfulness of riches. Here's number two. Go to verse 17. Same chapter, First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. Don't put your trust in money. Here's number two. Don't put your faith or your trust in money. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So a couple points here those who are rich in this world. Paul is writing to Timothy, who's a pastor, and he's instructing Timothy how to teach and instruct the church. So we know that Christians can be rich. Lydia, in Acts chapter 16, was a businesswoman who got saved, and she was a very wealthy woman. Church history says that she was the one who helped fund Paul the Apostle's later missionary journey. So she was a very rich woman, and she was wealthy. The Bible does not say that Christians can't have money or that they can't be wealthy. But if you are, if you find yourself in that place, two things, don't be conceited and don't put your trust or your faith in it. So what happens with money? I start to get money and naturally this little dome of mine begins to swell and I start to think, oh, I'm better than I really am. And then what begins to happen is I start trusting in my own wealth. I start trusting in my own might. And that thing goes down so fast. Jesus said this. Do you remember? They asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And one line he says, give us this day our what? Do the rich pray that God would give them their daily bread? Why? They have more than enough. They are not dependent upon God. They're not searching for food. They're not absolutely, completely, and totally uh, dependent on what the Lord is going to do for them that day because they have enough. They trust in their own riches, in their own wealth, and that begins to swell up the mind. Why is that foolish? How in verse 17 is riches described. If you look at verse 17, how is it described? Yep, Maria got it, uncertainty. Now, think of it from a business perspective. Do you want to take everything you own, your spiritual well-being, emotional well-being, physical well-being, financial well-being and place it into an uncertain investment? No, why? Because there's a possibility that what happens It goes belly up and what happens to you? You fall into the people in verse nine and 10 where you have wrecked your life. So we don't trust in riches because they are uncertain. They are fleeting. We're heading into a recession. That means that your bank accounts and your savings accounts and your retirement accounts are probably going to start to deplete. If this is true and all your hope is fixed in your treasures, what happens to you? So what is the command? If you're rich in this present world, don't get hot, uh, big headed about it. Don't become proud and prideful about it. What do you do? So in verse 17, fix their hope or, uh, not be considered, conceited, nor fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Why? Because God is never changing. Now let's go back. You're a businessman you got to make an investment. You have an uncertain investment, or you can invest in God, which is a certain way by which you can receive a, a, a return on investment. Which one do you do? The obvious one is God. But now look at your life. And your actions may not say, oh, it's that obvious though, right? Like up here we get it, but down here we may not understand. And so the Bible says don't love money, Don't place your faith in money. Now turn to Matthew chapter six. And here's the third warning when it comes to money and our view on money. Don't serve it. Don't serve money. Matthew chapter six and verse 24. So Jesus in verse 16 through 24, he's doing a series of teachings and he's giving two options. Each, each section of teaching, he's given two options. And the first section, he teaches about there are two ways to store your treasure or two places to store your treasure. One's the correct way and one's the incorrect way. And he says, place or store your, uh, your treasure where? In heaven. And then why? Because thieves can't break in and steal, moths can't eat, and rust can't de- destroy. Then the second option. Placing your investment, or your treasure on earth. Now, why is that a bad investment or choice? Because it can get stolen, which many people have had their life savings jacked by scammers, jacked by governments and all the rest. Anyway, um, I was about to go down a rabbit trail. Woo! Uh, where were we? Don't store it on earth because people will steal it. Moths will eat it and rust will destroy. So option number one, Jesus is saying, hey, be heavenly minded, not earthly minded. Then he goes to the second option and it's with the eyes, the good eyes and the bad eyes. The good eyes illuminate the whole body. The bad eyes darken the whole body. Jesus's point, be careful where you fix these things because this follows. Think of a motorcycle. When, If you've ever ridden a motorcycle, they say, look through your turn. Why do they say, look through your turn? Wherever your eyes go, your body follows. It's a natural occurrence. So Jesus is saying, good eyes illumines, bad eyes corrupts. Keep your eyes fixed on the right things. Now here's the third option of two, and it's in verse 24. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. So we have two masters, and Jesus was so kind to define them for us. Who are the two masters? God and wealth, or God and mammon, or money. Those are the two masters. Now, back then in the Roman Greco world, Slavery was a very big part of the, the culture. One out of every three in Rome was actually a slave. And one in five in the entire empire was actually a slave. Slave trade and slavery was such a fabric of the Roman Greco world. So we may not understand it, but there would be a marketplace and it would be a a slave trade, and their masters would go and they would bid or purchase. And this is what the Bible says God did with us through Christ. We were were slaves to sin, and Jesus bought us back with his blood. It's called redeeming us. And so a master would redeem his slave, and then that slave's sole purpose was 100% devotion. Now that's the context. Now, when Jesus says you cannot have two masters, he's saying that because how can you be 100% devoted to two things? How can any of you be 200% of anything? The best you can do is 100%. But if if slavery to a master requires that, full devotion, 100%, then Jesus is making his point. You must choose this day whom you serve. You cannot serve God because he requires 100% and you cannot serve money and your wealth because he, the master requires 100% of you. So Jesus says, you're going to have to choose one. You're going to hate one and you're going to love the other, but you're going to have to choose. Now, why is this command of not serving money so important? Because it reworks Everything that God, the spirit has done in your life since salvation. Now notice God says, walk by faith, not by sight. What does money say? Walk by sight. It's only the numbers in my account that matter. All the theories and all that, none of that matters. Money in the account, the the balance is what really matters. God says, set your minds on the thing above. What does money say? Set your mind on the things below. What does God say? Invest on those things that are eternal. What does money say? Invest in the temporal. You see, it is counterproductive for you to serve God because you've been called to, or for you to serve money because you've been called to serve God. Now, why, and and we'll think this through, why is God so serious about loving money, trusting money, serving money? When you are loving money, trusting money, serving money, who is not getting love, who is not getting service, and who is who is not getting your full trust? God. Why is God so serious? Because literally it's robbing him of his glory. The Christian should love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number one. Last week, Hebrews 11.6, remember? Without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. So if you're putting your trust in money, how can you please God? It's literally impossible. And then number three, who do you serve? You're not serving Jackson. You're not serving Franklin or Hamilton. They didn't save you. You are saving the, or you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, money robs God of his loving devotion robs God of his loving servitude from you and robs God of his trust and faith. God alone is the de- is uh, allowed for our love, our devotion and our service. So it robs God. Here's the fourth pitfall. Money is deceptive. Look at Matthew chapter 13 Matthew chapter 13 and verse 22. This is the danger with money, is it is incredibly deceptive. Now, Jesus is teaching a parable. You've heard this parable. It's the parable about the seeds and the ground, and there are four different kinds of grounds, and those make up the four types of people in the world. There are three types of people that never get saved. There are one type of person that gets saved and actually bears fruit. Jesus is focusing in now on number three, and this is where we pick up the story. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 22. And the Lord said, and the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So here we have a person who they start to look and become concerned and worrisome. And then their trust by default is money. Now, how many people do you know stay up at night because they're backed on their mortgage or they can't pay their credit card bill or they don't have enough gas to go to work in the morning? There is an incredible amount of angst that comes with financial stress and pressure. And if you haven't been there before, consider yourself very blessed. It is a very hard place when you are in a real bind and things are really tough and tight. Now, Jesus is warning about these people because these are the people who they see their problems and they get anxiety because of it. How am I going to pay all my bills? How am I going to, to meet all these needs? How is this going to get done? And then they fall into the lie of riches. Jesus calls it the deceitfulness of riches. You see, in our culture, we have been taught from a youth the American dream and that american dream revolves around money. and we have been tied and here's the deceit that the purpose of life is to make money. now people don't outright say it but everything we do is geared to that exact purpose. when you say when you hear someone tell tell you about a successful person what are they describing? Riches, right? The success of their wealth, their business, they're, they're climbing up the ladder. Never about morality. Never about how they're doing great things for other people. Never that stuff. It's always money. Why? Because we gauge success on wealth. It has a complete wrong factor. That's terrible. Some of the poorest people in the world were the greatest people. Jesus didn't have a home. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was homeless, greatest man to ever live. So we have this idea of the deceitfulness of riches, and we're told money solves all problems. So I'm told in middle school and high school, get really good grades. And why do you want really good grades? So you can get into a really good college. And then I get into a really good college, and what am I required to do? Get really good grades. Now, why am I getting really good grades? So I can get a really good job. And why do I want a really good job? So I can really have a good job and good money. And I can go buy a house in suburbia with a white picket fence, two cars and a dog and live happily ever after. Do you know how many people do the American dream and they're absolutely miserable? Because they fell for the lie that money is the purpose. They fell for the lie that success is governed by how much you have and not the content of your character. They have believed the lie. It really is the deception of riches. It really is something where if you're not cognizant of, it's so easy to fall entrapped and enslaved to. Here's another thing about the deceitfulness of riches. We hear this all the time. Money can't buy you love. Usually is what people say. Money can't buy you love, which is true. In fact, money cannot buy you any characteristic of the spirit. And yet in the heart of every person, we desire love and to be loved, peace, joy, kindness, goodness, self-control, grace, mercy. We desire that from people and we desire to give that to people, but money can never deliver. Money can't buy you love. Money can't buy you peace. Money can't buy you joy. Money can't make you kind. Money can't give you goodness in life. Money can never give you self-control. Money doesn't operate in those ways. That's another lie and deception of money. Here's another one, and we just touched on it. Money can't make you happy. No matter how much you have, money can't make you happy. Look at all these rich jerks flying around their jets, and they're miserable absolute, and they got to go to the depths of depravity just so they can have a little bit of fun. I don't envy these people at all. Not at all. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you don't want to turn there because it'll take like 10 days, you can just read what I have to say. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. This is Solomon, richest man to ever lived. His net worth is valued around $1.2 today. So he knew a thing or two about money. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So you make more money, you spend more money. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of a working man is pleasant whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil, which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him and he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils with the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Solomon's point is this love happiness joy everything that we've been told money will bring it brings the exact opposite you see the poor man when he eats and goes to sleep he has nothing to worry about except waking up for work the next day the rich man has to worry about what's happening in Asia what's happening in the German market what's happening to the dollar index what's happening to the interest rates it's a never-ending stress ball so do yourself a favor And don't seek to accumulate wealth. Don't love it. Don't put your trust in it. Don't serve it. Don't be deceived by it. Two things quickly that we should do when it comes to viewing money. So if you want to turn back to 1st Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6, this is one thing when it comes to money that we should be doing. 1st Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So verse six, godliness with contentment is great gain. What is godliness? It's doing the things that God likes. So if you do something and you know God's in heaven saying, that a boy, that's godliness. If you can see God do it in scripture and you can read God commanding it, then that's godliness. Doing what God would do, what's pleasing to him, that's godliness. Now when you couple that with contentment, there is great gain. Now who here wants to throw a 40-yard pass down the field in life? Who here wants a massive promotion? Who here wants to, to pro, uh, project their life forward? Who wants a big play to really get momentum in their life? If you do, here's the key. Do what God wants you to do and do it with a content heart. And what happens is there's great gain. You throw the ball way down the field for a great pass. You get yourself now set up to score. That's the idea. You want a great gain? Do what God says and be content with where God has you. Now, what is contentment? Here's the logic of it in verse 7. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Here's the, the logic of contentment. Naked into the world I came, and naked into the world I will leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You came naked, you're going to leave naked. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You will never see a hearse carrying a U-Haul truck to the cemetery because you cannot take it with you. Your house stays here. Your cars stay here. Your bank accounts stay here. And that's what Solomon says. Why am I going to work my entire existence just to give it to my son who, who didn't even work for it, who doesn't even care for it, who's just going to destroy the business anyway? Why have I labored just to amass this and then die and not enjoy? It? Vanity. Vanity, vanity, vanity. So contentment with great gain. What's the logic behind it? You can't take your riches anywhere. Now, what is contentment? Verse, uh, verse eight, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. So what is the bar for contentment? It's having the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities of life. You are fully content and appreciative that God has given you what you need for survival. Now, when you have that, now there's room for great gain. Why? Because if God entrusts you with little and you've done good and you were faithful in that, what does he do? Give you more. Give you more. And in this context, that's wealth. Remember, God doesn't want you to be rich or poor. As we're going to see, it's God who delivers you the wealth. What he wants you to do is respond the correct way. Don't be in love with it. Don't serve it. Don't put your trust in it and be content with what the Lord has. Here's the second thing. Turn to James chapter one and verse 17. James chapter one and verse 17. When viewing money, here's one thing we must keep in in our minds. Where does money come from? Somebody said the right answer back there. Where does money come from? Yes, it comes from the central bank and blah, but where does, where does a central bank, where does actual money come from? From God. Now keep that in your perspective when it comes to the view of money. Everything good comes from God. Look at James chapter 1 and verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That again is the certainty of God's riches. He doesn't change. He's not, he's not shifting. He's not changing here and there and everywhere. Where does every good thing, including wealth come from? God, why do you think that's important to know? Remember when we went back to trusting in riches, what happens to your head? When you trust in riches and you become wealthy, what begins to happen? ego, right? You begin to have a huge head. What James is saying here is if you identify that everything good comes from God, where's your ego? It's just like salvation. It's not a gift of works lest anyone should boast. There's no ego. Therefore God gets the glory. And so James says, everything comes from God. So turn to Deuteronomy chapter eight, Deuteronomy chapter eight, And verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 11, Deuteronomy eight and verse 11. Cause somebody may say, well, I went to school. I put myself through college. I'm the one who stayed up late at night. I'm the one who went through the interviews. I'm the one who's actually putting in the hours. I did it. Look at what Deuteronomy chapter eight and verse 11 says, beware that you do not forget the Lord, your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I have commanded you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good homes and lived in them. And when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiplies and all that you have multiplies, then your hearts will become proud And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, he fed you with manna, which your fathers did not know. He might humble you and that you might test and he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, You may say in your heart, my power and strength of my hands made this wealth, but you shall remember the Lord, your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And it shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. So the medical student who is now going to become a doctor, God gave them the brain to be able to do that. The salesman who has the gift of gab, God gave them the tongue to do that. The visionary who can see the future and see the needs, God gave them that. The worker who can put 80 hours a weekend and just continue to go forward, God gave you that drive. And it's all those things that God has given you that results in the wealth that God entrusts to you. Now, what then does he want you to do? Not love it, not serve it, not trust it, not be deceived by it. He wants you to be content right where he has you. He wants you to give him thanks and gratitude. And this is the third thing. Turn to Matthew chapter six and we're done. And I promise we're done. Matthew chapter six and starting at verse 25. Now, this is the very next verse after the two masters. So if you remember the verse about you can't serve have two masters, you hate one, hate the other, this is the very next verse after that. And it's dealing with financial anxiety. It's dealing with financial anxiety, financial worry. It's dealing with daily bread. Now, Jesus, what he ends up saying is this, get your eyes off of things and your eyes on me, and you'll be fine. Verse 25, for this reason I say to you, Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Now, why that's important is because, and we'll see next week, that God has told us when it comes to money, work hard. And to, and to labor and to toil and to save and to put away. There's all these principles about money. And what Jesus is pointing out is the birds of the air do none of that. And yet what does God still do? Takes care of them. If you look at, at verse 27 at the end of it, it says, And yet your heavenly fa- uh, father feeds them. Are you not worth mo- much more than they? And who of you? by being worried, can add a single hour to his life. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field. They do not toil, they do not spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed themselves like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So again, the flowers don't toil or spin. That's the idea of making clothing. We'll look at it next week, how women would spin and and make clothes. The flowers don't do that, and yet God still clothes them. And then Jesus says, are you not more valuable than birds and grass? You were made in God's image, chosen from before the foundations of the world, called, saved, justified, glorified, all of these things are you not more valuable than a sparrow and some grass? The answer is absolutely. Now Jesus goes to his next point. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing for the Gentiles? Unbelievers eagerly seek all these things for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things, but Here's our first command. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. There's two commands and then the effect. Command one, seek the kingdom. Command two, his righteousness. Then what's the effect? All these things will be added to you. Now, what are the all these things? What's the context? Specifically, the context. Nope. The context of what Jesus is saying. All these things specifically referring to what? Food, drink, clothes right? That's what he's talking about with the, the birds of the air and, and Solomon's clothing. He's talking about feeding, drinking, and clothing and shelter, the bare necessities of life. When you seek the kingdom, when you seek his righteousness, what does God do in return? Everything that you need for survival, God promises it. Now forget the federal reserve. Imagine having God, the creator of all resource, backing you. And saying, as long as you do these things, the bank of the bank of heaven is open to you. I will open up the storehouse and I will fill your needs. Imagine having that kind of security. Well, that's the security of the Christian. So what do we do? We are content with where God has us. We know that everything that we have is because God gave us that wealth. And then three, we're not focused on money. We're focused on the Lord, and God will take care of the money. Does that make sense? All right, next week we're going to look now at very practical money lessons from the Bible so that we can all get rich. Amen? No. (laughs) Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your truth. We thank you, God, that we have the truth. We thank you, Lord God, that Christians are the most wise people on the earth if we simply say, yes, Lord. And so, God, we know money is a real issue. Lord, uh, we work hard for it. We struggle to keep it. The Bible says, Lord, that we work hard and we put it into purses, and those purses have holes. We work hard and money grows wings and flies away. Money and wealth is uncertain, but you aren't. And so, God, may we fix our hope on the unchanging and ever faithful God. In Jesus' name, amen. that is the end of this week's podcast we thank you for joining us for another inspiring message if you enjoyed this teaching please take a moment and share it with others if you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location time of worship service or even what ministries we offer we encourage you to visit our facebook page at journey community church montana where you can find all that information and more again on behalf of journey community church of montana we thank you for tuning in have a blessed week and we'll see you here next time